Good morning. This morning I'm going to be reading from the book of Genesis as we continue that series. It's going to be chapter 29, verses 1 through 30. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the fields, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel his daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave 
his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy anniversary. I don't know if there's another anniversary that I don't know if it's on your radar or not, but it was right around this time 38 years ago during a television performance of Billie Jean that Michael Jackson debuted what would become his signature move, the moonwalk. And what makes the moonwalk so fascinating is the, the illusion that the dancer is moving forwards. He has the arm movements of going forward, but actually it's a backwards slide. And believe it or not, Michael Jackson did not invent that move. It's been a, it had been around for at least 50 years prior. Uh, back, it traces back at least to the 1930s when uh, the American jazz singer and Rochester native Cab Calloway used it and he called it the buzz. So it's been around quite a while, but I want to suggest that the moonwalk has been around much, much longer than that. In fact, I see signs of it here in Genesis 29. And I'll show you that if you, uh, hopefully you've got your Bible still turned to Genesis 29. I want to show you some things from this chapter. As the chapter begins, um, it says that Jacob went on his journey. And the literal, literal translation of the original Hebrew is, he lifted up his feet. And I just like that better. It sounds way better because it paints a picture of a man with a spring in his step, um, gliding, as it were, as if he's walking on air. One thinks of the traditional Irish blessing. May the road rise to meet you. And eventually, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Well, this actually explains why Jacob is walking on air. It's because the Lord had graciously appeared to him in a dream. And he had revealed himself in a very profound way to Jacob. He had encouraged Jacob with his wonderful promises. Promises like, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you. I will be with you wherever you go. I will not depart from you until I complete everything that I've promised to do in you. So really, armed with these promises, promises of progeny, promises of presence, promises of protection, it's no wonder that Jacob lifted up his feet and almost danced his way to Haran. And once he gets there, things go swimmingly at first, or so it seems. And you might conclude that Jacob has just slid very smoothly into the most spectacular success, but this forward progress is a bit of an illusion. Jacob, as we'll see, is actually going backwards. He's, he's actually sliding backwards, and this is the original moonwalk, I think. I, I, I just mean to say that Jacob quickly forgets about the promises of God's presence, and he doesn't give much thought to the implications of God's presence with him. In fact, in this passage, the name of the Lord is not even mentioned. 
That's not to say that there's no sign of the Lord. Uh, certainly there is, because God's presence is always seen. It's always seen uh, through at least his providence. But it is to say that there is no acknowledgement of God. And so, as you might expect, disaster ensues. Disaster and disorder on a magnitude that is about equal to what we saw uh, after the deception of chapter 27. 29, 27, they're kind of equal in magnitude to disaster. And as we'll see, it's not by accident that these two disasters are compared and contrasted. Um, you know, there's quite a few similarities between Jacob's blessing from his father and Jacob's brides from his uncle. This is intentional. This is by design, and I hope to show you some of that. They're, they're a matching pair, kind of like crime and punishment. So let's work through this passage, at least through the first uh, 30 verses of Genesis 29, to learn a couple of the, que- the uh, lessons that... Jacob needed to learn about God's promised presence and his protection. There are two main lessons here, it seems to me, and we'll take these as the main points of our sermon. Um, You you can fill these in manually on the back of your bulletin if you're taking notes. The first is that God's presence implies dependence. God's presence implies dependence and second, God's presence includes discipline. God's presence includes discipline. We'll take these in turn. Let's look first at this point, this lesson, that God's presence implies dependence. Now when the Lord says things like, I will be with you, I will keep you, I will never leave you nor forsake you, the clear implication is that we must be totally dependent on him. Indeed, the only reason that those kinds of promises would ring in our ears as good news is if we recognized our utter need of him, of his protection and his presence and his help. You know, when you're stopped off at the side of the road, pulled over with a flat tire, and some guy pulls up behind you and says, don't worry, it's okay, I'm here, I'll help, Whether that comes across to you as good news depends entirely on whether you actually need the guy's help or think that you need the guy's help. If you're a damsel in distress or if you're a beta male wearing a romper, then those are going to be very reassuring words to you. Don't worry, it's okay, I'm here, I'll help. But if you know how to change tires, and, and it, in fact, if you're in the process of changing the tire, and, I mean, it's certainly a nice gesture, very nice for the guy to offer, but ultimately it's, it's more of an inconvenience to have that guy standing over your shoulder. That guy's presence is not really comforting. In fact, it's a little bit annoying. But, of course, we're talking about the Lord God here. This is who has promised to be with you, 
to keep you, to help you. We're talking about the almighty king of the universe. We're talking about the one who is all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful, the creator and sustainer of all things. When he promises his power and his presence and his protection, surely we would recognize how dependent we are, how desperately we stand in need of him, wouldn't we? we would understand the clear implication and understand it almost instinctively that we are entirely dependent on God for all things, such that without him we can do nothing. That much is obvious, isn't it? Well, yes and no. We agree with that in theory, but so often in practice we forget Yes, there are certain times when we're brought really low, when, when we are made to feel our need of him in, in a profound way. In those times, the, the promise of God's presence and help is one that comforts us and it buoys us and lifts us up such that we can go walking with our, ten feet off of Be- our feet you know, high in the air, ten feet off of Beal. But after we've been walking in that strength for some time, we forget. We forget every time. We become self-reliant. We're happy to do the, the heavy lifting ourselves. Thank you very much. Our attitude is, I've got it. I've got it. Thanks. Now, if you, wanna, if you want a more realistic poem about how we view the Christian life, I suppose it would be something like the photo negative of the footprints poem. You know, rather than seeing two sets of footprints for most of the trip down the beach and then only one set during the difficult times, we're actually quite happy with just the one set of footprints for most of the time, and those are our footprints. And then, yes, two sets during the the difficulties, times when we know ourselves to be in need. That isn't, isn't that practically how we think the Christian life goes? Or at least how we live it? So Jacob, he's lifted up his feet and he's moving forward, powered by the promise of God and uh, the presence of God. But by the time he reaches Haran, he's going to slip backwards into self-reliance. How do I know this? Well, a couple of different ways. First, by comparing and contrasting two different wells and then two different stones. If you, if you just kind of compare different wells and different stones, then you can, you can better see what's going on. I think the narrator leads us in the direction, in that direction. Take the wells, for example. You know, one of our favorite kinds of stories to hear are stories about how married couples met. I'm sure we've talked about this before, but, you know, Jamie and I get asked this quite, quite often, and we're always very excited to share, even though our story has a very familiar plot. The, the bottom line, I mean, it's all beautiful and wonderful, don't get me wrong, but the bottom line is we met at seminary through a mutual friend. So it's, it's so common, it's, so, it's almost a cliche 
You know, everyone knows that that's why people go to bridal college to get their MRS degree. And these days, many, uh, many couples uh, will tell their stories and it'll involve things like Match.com or Christian Mingle or Facebook Marketplace or whatever. But back in the day, apparently, if you were to ask, say, a couple in the book of Genesis how they met, chances are they would say something like this, well, uh, we were both just kind of hanging around a well. And the rest is history. Wells, uh, the original meat market. All right, so who would have thunk it? Who would ever imagine that? So singles, I hope you guys are taking notes here. Wells, that's where it's at, especially if you're looking for a long, tall drink of water. Anywho, you'll no doubt remember that this is where Abraham's servant met a wife for, his, for Abraham's son Isaac. It was at a well. In fact, this account is so similar to that one that it's clear that the narrator is inviting us to compare and to contrast the two accounts. Both cases involve beautiful young women. Laban is the main, one of the main characters in, in each of these stories. In the first, he's the brother. Now he's the father. Both marriages are sort of a consolation for a missing mother. That's another similarity. There's a ton of them, actually. I've just mentioned a few of the similarities. But what is most interesting, I think, are the contrasts. The contrasts. In the first case, a servant is acting on behalf of the potential groom and his father. And uh, that servant comes with a massive entourage, all kinds of camels and uh, expensive gifts. In this case, Jacob comes alone, he's acting alone, and he comes empty-handed. He, he comes without anything to give as a greeting gift, let alone a dowry. But here, I think, is the starkest contrast between these two well stories, and that is between the presence and the absence of God. And this correlates with the dependence that Abraham's servant sensed that he had, and the complete independence of Jacob. You remember chapter 24, don't you? You remember how the servant's journey and mission, the whole thing, was punctuated with prayer and praise. Before the encounter, the servant had prayed to the Lord that he would prosper the journey. Furthermore, it wasn't enough for the servant um, to, to see that the girl was beautiful but he wisely set forth a sort of test of her character to see if she was servant-hearted, to see if she would water all of these camels. In the midst of that encounter, even as Rebecca was, was passing the test, the text there says that the servant gazed at her in silence in order to learn whether or not the Lord had prospered his journey. And then when it was clear that the Lord had prospered his journey, what did he do? He bowed his head and he worshipped. God is throughout all of this. There's, there's an, an incredible dependence on God in the whole process. 
in this case, in the present case, the Lord God is conspicuous in his absence. There's no prayer. There's no patient discernment. There's no praise. Rather, what you have is Jacob springing into action. He's laying down his own set of footprints, one set of footprints, and he's basically saying, I got this. I got this. And that brings us to a second contrast, which is the stones. The stones. In verses 2 and following, the narrator describes uh, the well that's kind of at the center of the scene. And the narrator also describes the great big stone that was on top of that well. And this was a very common feature in that time. Even as a well cap is mandatory uh, today, it provides safety, but it also provides security. So safety, because you don't want people falling into a well of water, but then security, so that only authorized people can come and use this well. You don't want unauthorized people to come and steal this precious resource. So this stone was so big that it would take a number of guys to remove it, which is why as this scene opens, you you see people starting to pull in shepherds with their respective flocks, and they're, they're waiting. They're not doing anything. They're waiting around until everyone got there before they removed the rock, because it would take that many. So Jacob meets these shepherds, who uh, you can tell from the text, they're not highly motivated individuals. And he asks them about Laban. He wants to know, am I in the right vicinity? Do these guys know Laban? And they say, yes, we know him. And look, there's his daughter Rachel coming right now. Again, you read a detail like that and you realize that even though Jacob is not acknowledging the Lord's presence, his providence is so clear that, of course, he is there and he is orchestrating all of these events. So Jacob looks and he sees, uh, he sees a figure with that classic hourglass shape walking towards him. And that's a good start, but he doesn't jump the gun because as young men sometimes discover, there's a potential that that girl can be a a Monet, as they say. You know, from far away it's okay, but you get up close and it's a big old mess. You know, the whole good from far but far from good thing hey, this is, what are you looking at me like? This is in the text, okay? Because sure enough, when Rachel pulls up with her flock of sheep, Jacob sees, oh, good, she's beautiful in both form and appearance. So both check out, and that's good. But that seems to be the extent of his evaluation. Again, you see here, there's no test of her character, like in the last instance, there's no waiting on the Lord to discern if he had prospered his journey. There's no dependence on God. It's just a determination to plow forward in his own independence. And that's exactly what he does. In verse 10, we read that as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, he went to the well, single-handedly removed the stone, 
remember, this is a job for a bunch of guys. And Jacob's like, no, I got this. And with his trademark determination and strength, he rolls the stone away all by himself, and he waters all of the flock of sheep. He, Jacob does this on his own, and he kissed Rachel, and he wept, and then he introduced himself, which seems backwards to me. But what do I know? Rachel doesn't seem to mind, and she runs back excitedly to tell her father what has just happened. Well, what has just happened? Consider the stones. Think about the stones. You'll remember that there was also a stone of great significance in the previous chapter. I'm talking about the pillow turned pillar. You remember that after Jacob realized and recognized that he had been in the presence of the holy God, he set up that stone that he had been sleeping on. He set it up as a monument. He set it up on end to mark the house of God, Bethel, and to memorialize the place where God was and where God had promised to be with him. This was a stone that represented the, the almighty presence of God. And now, in this very next chapter, we have another very large stone that is at the center of the story, but it couldn't be any more different. It, and it, it couldn't stand for something more opposite than that. It was a stone that stood for the strength of Jacob. It, it memorialized his, his supposed independence and determination. I don't know if that's the kind of monument you want to have for yourself when you are a chosen servant of God. You should have seen it, Dad. Rachel right now is saying to Laban, he did it all by himself. But that's precisely the problem. Because that is not how the Christian life is to be lived. One of the many things that I've learned from my dear friend, uh, Reed Ferguson, uh, who's a retired pastor now, um, but he's famous for, for this saying, this truism. Reed says, The Christian life cannot be lived any other way than conscious, constant, deliberate dependence upon the indwelling spirit. It's impossible. It's an illusion if you're living that way. It can't be done. The Christian's confession, if at our most soberest and honest, is this. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, and not just the, the odd time that things get a little bit too much to handle, but every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh Lord, how I need you. That is the confession of the Christian life. Now, the preciousness of the Lord's promise of his presence presupposes that we understand our complete dependence on him. And we are so slow to learn this. 
even when our plowing forward, our going it alone, results in a complete disaster, which it almost always does, and this is certainly the case with Jacob. Yes, this is a love story, and Jacob has found himself a haughty, but buckle up because this whole thing is about to turn into a hot mess. And this leads us to our second point, which is that God's presence includes discipline. God's presence includes discipline. This is another lesson that we have such a hard time learning. When we hear God promise things like, I will be with you, I will help you, I will keep you, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that sounds very sweet to us because we hear it as hakuna matata, you know, clear sailing ahead. That, that's what we're hearing when we hear the Lord say that to us. Like, our expectation is that with God at our side, that we're going to just be living the life of Riley, that things are going to be going as smoothly for us as a Michael Jackson moonwalk. But the Lord loves us way too much to ever let that expectation become the reality of our lives. He would hate us if that's what that meant and if that's how we lived. His, his presence with us does not preclude things like trials and suffering. His presence often entails discipline and rebuke. Why? Again, because he loves us. It, if you can reverse your thinking on that point, the way that you naturally think, if you can, if you can only flip that 180 degrees, then you'd be in a good position. You'd be a better parent. I'd be a better parent if I really understood that. I'd be a better prayer, a better praiser. As far as our parenting goes, our natural inclination is that we don't want to discipline our kids. We, we, we won't spank them because we, we just love them too much. But the Bible teaches us that our instincts on that are exactly opposite. They're, they're totally wrong. They couldn't be more wrong. 180 degrees out of alignment with God's Word, which says in Proverbs 13.24, for example, whoever spares the rod actually hates his son, but the one who loves their children are careful to discipline them. Similarly, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, wants to us to remember the exhortation that addresses us as sons and, and tells us, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son who he receives. In the same way, if we read something like Jacob have I loved then we should expect Jacob have I disciplined Jacob will I discipline 
And the chastisement of the Lord ought to be an expected part of the promise of his presence and his help. Not an exception to it, not something that contradicts it, but something that is part and parcel of it. Something that, if it was lacking, uh, would, would make his, his promise actually hollow. And sure enough, that's exactly what we find here in verses 13 to 30. The loving discipline of the Lord on Jacob. So, what is the tool that the Lord uses to discipline Jacob? Good old Uncle Laban. Now, when I say tool, I mean tool. This guy is a tool. And we've already come to to know him a little bit already from the last time that he was involved in a marriage arrangement. And we weren't very impressed with what we saw from that guy. He was, he was, we saw him to be a phony, a manipulator, uh, interested only in what he could get out of the deal. Well, it turns out that back then, he was on his best behavior. He was just the brother back then. Now he's the father. And if you didn't like him before, you're going to really not like him now. But, but now, here he is, running out of the house with lots of hugs and kisses. But he must have been very disappointed to discover that Jacob had arrived empty-handed. No camels, no money, no gifts of clothing and jewelry. He's got nothing. But Jacob has something of value to Laban, which is almost as good in, in his mind. He's strong. He's able-bodied. He's uh, determined. He's a rock mover. So here we've got potential for free labor. And you can almost see Laban's eyes light up at this prospect. But, but Laban's a pro, and he knows exactly what to say and what not to say. So he comes off very generous, very magnanimous when he says to Jacob, look, just because you're my nephew doesn't mean you should work for free. This after Jacob has been working for free for the last month. But anyway, no, you need, to, you need to make some money. Plus, Laban knows exactly what, what Jacob wants, what motivates him. Because he's seen the way that Jacob looks at Rachel and the way that his eyes and her eyes light up when he speaks to her. So, so Laban's rubbing his hands together at the prospect of a bunch more free labor only he's going to set it up to make it look like it was Jacob's idea. And here's the deal. Jacob is going to work for Laban for seven years in exchange for the hand of Rachel. Well, not, not just her hand, but like all of the rest of her too. Rachel, his younger daughter. Let's be clear his younger daughter, because there are actually two daughters here. There's an older one and a younger one. We are told this very important detail in verse 17, where it's also pointed out that Leah, the firstborn, was not nearly as attractive as her younger sister. The text says that her eyes were weak, and, and I don't know, pe- people don't know if this means that she had some sort of a physical handicap, um, it could just be a way of expressing 
the fact that her eyes didn't didn't shimmer and sparkle that the east in the way that the eastern people sound so appealing i don't know it's it's difficult to say but it the comparison is clear rachel is the beautiful one rachel is the loved one and as far as as jacob is concerned rachel have i loved leah eh, not so much i'm choosing the younger one not the older one so they had a deal look at verse 20 i love verse 20 maybe one of the most romantic lines in all of scripture says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. That's, that's nice, isn't it? And this is kind of a confusing chapter because there's, there's beautiful things in it like that, and then there's some really messed up things in it. It, it kind of hits all of the taste buds. Uh, there's some salty stuff. There's some bitter stuff, some sour stuff. But then you get something like this in verse 20, and it's just super sweet. And not in a cheesy, saccharine kind of way. No, Jacob really loved Rachel. And so fixated was he on the object of his affection that the years just flew by. They, they seemed like it was just a few days on retrospect. But then the seven years was up, and he said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. And that might sound to you like the opposite of sweet. I was like, oh, Jacob, we were doing so well up to that point, but that just kind that sounds kind of like you're just interested in one thing. But it's not. It's entirely appropriate that Jacob would want to consummate his love for Rachel. And that's how we've been designed. Okay? And consider what else this means. I'm, I'm trying to repair your view of Jacob here in the, at this point. It means that for seven years, Jacob has been a man of integrity. For starters, he, he's worked hard and he's kept up his end of the bargain. He's proven himself trustworthy. But he's also preserved the purity of his bride. He's waited patiently for the proper time. And now the proper time's here. Now, this is not the main point of the passage, but I, I want to just pause here so that you don't miss this. You young people especially, I don't want you to miss this. If you want a good story something that when people later ask you how did tell me about you guys you're, you're an awesome couple how did all this happen if you want a good story which is a god-honoring story then you're going to have to learn how to wait and to work you're going to have to learn how to be patient and how to be pure i i know that this is hard because you've grown up in in a culture where you get things within a day or two of ordering them. Okay, you don't have to wait for, you don't have to work for anything. It's all immediate gratification. It's just there at your fingertips. 
And we live in a time and an age where you ask a couple how they met, and chances are they'll say something like this. Ah, uh, well, we like matched on Tinder. Uh, we literally both swiped right on each other's profile picture, and so I texted her, and that night we hooked up, and it, it went on and on like that for a couple of weeks. And then the girl interjects, yeah, but then you ghosted me. But then a couple of weeks later, it was really sweet. He invited me on a date. He, he, we went out for coffee. It was like the most romantic thing anyone's ever done for me. Those are the kind of stories that you're going to hear. And I don't think you want that to be your story. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, other people won't tell you this, okay? The other people will just smile and nod and go, oh, okay. But I love you enough, enough to tell you that that is a stupid story. Sorry, Johnny. That, of course, the biggest thing is that it goes totally contrary to God's law and God's design. But I, but I think you ought to know that if you're going to do it your own way, it's not an improvement. Okay, this is not the kind of romance that makes for classic literature. It's cheap and it's stupid. If it wasn't so heartbreaking, it would be laughable. Young people, if you want a story that is both precious and poetic, then you're going to need to learn to wait and to work, to be patient and to be pure. Practically speaking, what this means is if you're a teenager and you have your heart set on someone and your parents or her parents say, we think it would be wise if you waited seven months or seven years, as the case is here. I know that's hard, but the makings of a great God-honoring story require that you obey your parents, that you wait patiently, that you work hard in the meantime, that, that you let the Lord form your character, that you treat your potential partner like a brother or sister in all purity. Because if the Lord's not in it, the time, then it's not, worth, it's not worth it. And if the Lord is in it, the time will come and it'll fly by and you'll have an incredible story to share. Well, back to this story. It's a sweet story, but it's also a, a bitter story. So Laban makes the preparations for a wedding feast, which involve, among other things, lots of drinking, probably to the point where Jacob can't even see straight. And if you're wondering how what is about to happen could possibly happen, that's the one element that you have to remember. This is a rip-roaring feast, and Jacob probably can't even see straight. And so you fast forward to the next morning, when the drinks have worn off, and uh, he rolls over in his tent and lifts up the veil, and verse 25, Behold, it's lazy-eyed Leah. 
Now Jacob understandably is upset. No doubt he trembled violently. That was not the deal. It was supposed to be Rachel. But in his blindness, in his tent, a woman came to him who appeared to be Rachel. Her father had swapped out the younger for the older. Laban had just pulled off the most remarkable deception. There hadn't been a switcheroo like that since, let's see, since Jacob did it to his father. Now, I'm sure this point was not lost on Jacob as he confronts Laban, and Laban's like, oh, oh, you didn't know? Oh, yeah, that, that, that's, part, that's customary in our country. You, you, yeah, of course. I, I just assumed when you wanted Rachel, that meant, of course, that you'd have to take Leah first. It's, very, it's custom in our country that the firstborn is first and then the younger. You, you did you didn't think that the younger was going to get preference over the older, did you? Laban says. And with all of this talk about the younger versus the older and the rights of the firstborn, with all of this playing dress up and all of this deception, I'm sure that when Jacob's anger wore off, he must have said something like, Touche, Lord. You see, the Lord is present, but his presence often includes discipline. And he disciplines those he loves. He loves us way too much to let our sin go unresolved, to go undealt with. And many times, the way that he deals with us is on the basis of reciprocity. Reciprocity. That is to say, he... This is putting it far too crudely, but he gives us a taste of our own medicine. Not in a vindictive way, but in a purifying kind of a way. You know, this whole episode with Jacob stealing the blessing, that whole thing was an absolute disaster, and God is not going to be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. That's a biblical principle. That is all over Scripture. A man will, or a, a woman, will reap what they sow. Although I need to explain that that works a little differently. It's, diff- it's applied differently depending on your relationship to the Lord. So if you remain a rebel to God, if you remain apart from Him and insisting on doing your own thing, championing your own independence and going your own way, well, if you don't destroy your, your life, in the here and now, this principle will certainly catch up to you in eternity. You're going to reap what you've sown. You've spent your life away from the presence of God? Well, you're going to have to experience the the darkness and the horror of his absence and the presence of his anger and his wrath for all eternity in a place called hell. But there's good news found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is that if you repent of your sin, if you turn in faith and in trust and obedience to Christ, then you will be forgiven of your sins and you will be put in a right relationship with God. 
a fatherly relationship with God. And you ask, how is this possible? Well, it's possible by a slight tweak on the principle that one reaps what one sows. God has put forth His Son as my substitute. He lived and died in my place such that He has reaped what I have sown, namely the punishment for my sins has fallen on Him, and I have reaped what He has sown. His his perfect record of righteousness has been credited to my account. This is the glory of the gospel. A, a A tweaking of the principle of one reaps what one sows. Praise God that someone else has reaped what I've sown and that I have reaped what he has sown. And that, that means that I or you, if you turn and repent in faith, will never face eternal justice and retribution for your sins. At the same time, the Lord is gracious to discipline me, to rebuke me, to mature me, to conform me evermore into the image of my dear Savior. And the way that he often does this is by helping me see the consequences of my sin. It's a gracious thing that Jacob has a Laban in his life. And and the 20 years that is spent with this joker is going to produce maturity and and righteousness in him. It's It's exactly true what Hebrew says, that for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Brothers and sisters, I want you today to be encouraged by the promises and the presence of God. His presence with you implies that you are completely dependent on Him. So embrace your weakness and accept your need and graciously turn to the help of the Lord. Look to Him to lead and guide. Meet with Him often in prayer and in praise and in patient waiting. Let the Lord be your help and your strength and your salvation. And be encouraged also in the fact that God's presence with you includes His loving discipline. So yield to it. Be be trained by it. Be changed by it. And enjoy the peaceful fruits of it. Do this, brothers and sisters, for your own good, uh, but ultimately for the glory of Christ. Amen? Amen.